Well, my name is Jay Kaiser. Today is uh, uh, September 11th, uh, ominous day, ominous date, and I'm interviewing uh, Noam Chomsky. And Noam, I wanted to ask you uh, a question that actually uh, was uh, uh, brought to me by uh, Sylvan Bromberger. Uh, and Sylvan uh, and Morris and I often sit around uh, and talk about the state of linguistics, and Sylvan made a comment which actually uh, surprised me. Uh, he was saying that uh, he thought that linguistics today was roughly at the same stage that uh, physics was at the time of Kepler and Galileo and Huygens, and he said, in order to back up that point, he said, look, you talk about movement and merge, but what does that mean in terms of the brain? He says, it's really just marks on a piece of paper, just the way you're forced to do it. And I wondered, uh, he thought he said in the same way that uh, um, these guys, Galileo and, uh, and, uh, and company, uh, needed a Newton in order to uh, make sense of of, uh, of their calculations. He thinks that that's what linguistics needs. And what do you think about that? Well, I'm a little hesitant about analogies because the topics are so different and the level of achievement is so different and uh, so on. But there's something to it. And in fact, uh, Kepler and Galileo and Newton did, uh, uh, this is part of the Galilean revolution, tried to uh, provide uh, uh, an explanatory basis for the uh, theoretical analyses that they were giving of the tides and the motion of planets and so on. Uh, and, they had, and Galileo pretty much formulated, it was sharpened later in the century, it was essentially a mechanical model. Uh, the world is a machine. And by machine, they meant, in the common sense, uh, understanding of machine, right? gears and levers and things pushing each other and so on. And they even had concrete models in mind. It's worth remembering that at that period, there was tremendous fascination with automata. And was making uh, you know, the models of a duck that digested uh, you know, these incredible uh, fountains and the, you know, the royal palaces and so on. Yeah, I remember complicated the, clocks. And the, the ducks would eat and then it would actually defecate and, and right. emit a foul smelling odor. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, uh, but, but there was the same, in fact, it's kind of like today in some respects. There was kind of an obsession and fascination with complex machines. And uh, the Galilean concept later developed was, uh, okay, the world is just a machine, just like the kind of complex machine that uh, Jacques de Vaucanson developed, except more complicated and uh, made by a much greater master, you know, perfect master. But that's, that's the explanatory model. Now, so yes, they did have, uh, in response to Sylvan's comment, they actually had a, an explanatory basis. Trouble is, it was wrong. Uh -huh, right. uh, and uh, uh, Galileo already recognized that something's wrong. He, toward the end of his days, he said, uh, I think we're never going to understand, explain anything because I cannot construct mechanical models to deal with, say, the tides and uh, the planetary motions and so on. So he kind of left in despair. Descartes came along and felt that he had created a mechanical model. Descartes, what 
people read in philosophy classes is not what Descartes was interested in either. And his main work was his physics, then called philosophy. Philosophy meant physics. So, and, and his... Uh, is this this business of psychophysical parallelism? Well, he, he ran into a problem. Uh, he thought that he could develop a, a pure mechanical model for everything that happened in the, in the world, uh, in the, or in the inorganic world, for most of for everything that happened with animals, even for most of humans, up to sensation, in fact. But when he considered certain aspects of humans, and strikingly the most dramatic for him was you know, the way language is used, because there's no way to construct a mechanical model for this, you know, the way in what's nowadays sometimes called the creative use of language, the, which he observed, I mean, the ability of every person to uh, produce uh, and understand an indefinite number of expressions uh, new to the person, uh, to do it uh, with, not uh, in ways that are appropriate to situations, but not caused by the situation, so it's not like a reflex response. And as far as anyone can tell, independent of internal stimuli. So there's some capacity, which is true of action generally, human action we saw, but is most striking in the case of language. Uh, and these expressions that we produce, uh, expressions of just producing uh, others, may not have thought of them, but they can understand them, and they know that they could have expressed that thought the same way. Right, this capacity, he argued, is beyond the range of a machine. And that's where the mind-body dualism comes from. Uh, there's machines that deal with everything, in, in the case of humans, all the way up to sensation and certain aspects of perception, but it hits a limit. Uh, and the creative use of language was his most striking example of the limit. Actually, that led to interesting work in the 17th century by his disciples uh, trying to uh, develop experimental tests that would determine whether some other creature who looks like us is in fact, has this special capacity with a mind, say. And uh, so you try this experiment and that experiment, and the conclusion was, well, if they pass every experiment we can devise, uh, we, it would be unreasonable for us not to conclude that they have a mind like ours. And these experiments are straight science. They're like a litmus test for acidity. There's a property that he claimed was in the world, namely mind, and we have to see if some entity, other creature, has it, so we do tests. Now that's a little bit like what's now called the Turing test, except much more reasonable. The Turing test makes absolutely no sense. In fact, Turing was quite aware of that. His brief paper on the subject opens by saying that the question is whether machines think it's too meaningless to deserve discussion. And then he goes on to talk about other things that led to a huge, in my view, mostly pointless industry. But the 17th century analogs make perfectly good sense. And there's a conception of the world based on machines, and that's the basis for explanation that Dawkins is talking about. And it ran into a limit, something was apparently beyond that limit, so therefore you have to invoke another principle. And then you do experiments to see where that principle holds. And of course, Descartes uh, wrestled with the idea of how these two substances and those 
collapsed. Newton showed that it didn't work. Uh, he showed that uh, the world is not a machine. And so uh, it's, uh, there, there is action at a distance, uh, which uh, an artisan cannot construct. An artisan cannot construct something in which two things that have no connection between them affect one another. But uh, Newton's discoveries were that the Cartesian mechanics didn't work, and the fact that no mechanics would work, and you had to have uh, uh, you had to have some other kind of system which had the abstract forces in it. Now Newton regarded this as an absolute absurdity, <laughs> and to the, he said no person with reasonable scientific intelligence can contemplate this for a moment. And he spent most of the rest of his life trying to get around it. And the great scientists of his day, like Christian Huygens and Leibniz and others, just mocked it. This is, he's reintroducing occult ideas like the neo-scholastic you know, sympathy against sympathies, uh, everything that science was trying to get away from. And Newton's answer, which was important, was to concede that he was introducing mystical ideas, but they're not like the occult ideas of the neo-scholastics, because he had a mathematical theory from which he could make predictions, uh, making use of these ideas. But there was no basis for it. The basis had been kicked out from under them, uh, but because uh, machines can work, uh, but nevertheless, they were, uh, there was an explanatory model, and uh, that's where science went on from there. I mean, actually, you know, if you look at the details, for centuries, great scientists tried to show that there was some mechanical basis, but finally recognized that's not the way to look at it. You have to, what, all you, what, what in fact it meant was lowering the levels of expectation for science. Uh, an explanation will be intelligible to us, Galileo and Newton thought, if we can give a mechanical model for it. Uh -huh. But we finally recognize we can't give mechanical models. That means the world is not intelligible to us, so we do the best we can. We get the best kinds of theories we can and uh, uh, try to explain things as best as we can, recognizing that there are ultimate mysteries. In fact, uh, David Hume, in his uh, uh, The History of England, the section on Newton, he describes as uh, you know, the greatest thinker the world has ever seen, uh, but who, and he said uh, Newton's most significant legacy to us is to show that there are mysteries of nature which are beyond our comprehension. And he didn't mean uh, you know, the nature of the meaning of life, he meant think that um, so I, so I don't think in a sense that the the the, the comment is correct that there's no basis known neural basis known for the uh, theoretical constructions yeah but in a sense that's the nature of science now in th this case is a little different because I think there's every reason to expect that there will be a neural basis whereas there's as Newton showed there's not going to be a machine a mechanical basis so this is not a mystery of the Humean type. It's just lack of knowledge. However, there may be mysteries there. I mean, it's the, what Descartes called, or what I, you know, has been called, the creative 
aspect of language used to express these observations. And no one has any idea uh, what the uh, physical basis of that might be. Why do you think that there's reason, that there might be reason to believe that there'll be some neural basis for movement or merge or traces? Well, there's no reason to doubt it. And if there's no reason to doubt it, we look for it. Uh, just as Galileo, it was perfectly sensible for Galileo to look for mechanical explanations. Do you have any idea what it might look like? Not really. I mean, uh, even for insects, the uh, neural basis for uh, what they do is essentially unknown. Yeah. These are not trivial questions. Yeah. It's, uh, in the case of humans, it's especially difficult because of ethical reasons. We don't permit ourselves to do the kinds of experiments that would uh, shed light on it. Right. So if you did invasive experiments, you know, you take, say, the visual system. And we know a lot about the human visual system uh, and the neural basis and you know, which uh, cells do which things and so on and so forth. But the reason is because we allow ourselves to torture cats and monkeys, and they have approximately the same visual system. So we do experiments with you know, highly invasive experiments with monkeys and kittens. Uh, you learn a lot about how it works. We assume that the human visual system must be more or less the same. There's no other organism to work on in the case of language. It's in all of its essential characteristics, the unique human possession. And you can't do controlled experiments. Like, for example, there's a lot of effort to investigate what's called poverty of stimulus. It's just a name for everything that happens in growth and development. And it's given a name in the case of language, but for mystical reasons, it holds for everything. So the fact that a human grows a, a mammalian visual system but not an insect visual system is not determined by the visual environment. Uh, the fact that we have arms and not wings doesn't depend on the food we eat and so on. So yes, there's a huge gap between the external information, if you like, that's in a, in a sense coming in and the way the organism develops. And that's true of language like everything else. Since language is looked and is looked at kind of mystically for cultural reasons, uh, this is considered a problem. In fact, it's not a problem. It's just saying language is like everything else. Uh, but there's a lot of study of it. So, like exactly what kind of data is required to for the infant to gain the capacity that we're now using? Well, there would be ways of studying this, namely uh, raise children in isolation or with deprived stimulation, or even not going to do that. So there are natural experiments, but no controlled experiments. So many, many questions that could be settled with straightforward experiments uh, just can't be carried out. And the same with the neurological basis. Instead of doing invasive experimentation on, on the brain, you know, trying to figure out what particular cells do and so on. What's done is uh, fMRI, studying things that we can look at from the outside without, uh, uh, without invasive procedures. So it's much harder to do than for insects. But even for insects, the answers are not known. It's not, it, you can't, these are not trivial scientific questions. I mean, uh, insects do incredible things. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a neural basis for it. Even the 
basis for the most elementary calculations that enter into insect behavior is only really speculation. Uh, Andy Ballester, one famous neuroscientist who's written about this. These are, these are hard topics. And uh, it is ex the expectation that we're going to have a neural account for uh, thought It's just not realistic. I mean, I mean, even in physics, you know, if questions get too complicated, physicists don't even try to solve them. They give them to chemists. So if, if some molecule is too big for a physicist to deal with, he tells the chemist, OK, it's your problem. And if it gets too complicated for the chemist, they give it to the biologist. If it's too complicated for the biologist, they give it to the historian. You know? uh, but as is the problem. So part of the reason why you know, the hard sciences make uh, deep discoveries is that they artificially restrict the domain of inquiry. And incidentally, that's another contribution of Galileo. I mean, sort of understood before, but he sharpened the understanding that if you want to gain any insight into some system, you don't have to move away from phenomena and towards abstraction, towards idealization. So instead of studying uh, abstract away from it and study ideal cases. And that's sometimes called the Galilean style. Uh, attribute more reality to the ideal case, even in a non-existent system, like a frictionless plane, than we do to the phenomena that are just too complicated because there's too many variables and too many interactions. And, and, and that's quite important for the study of language. I mean, in fact, it's a live battle in the study of language. Should we just study the mass of phenomena and use brute force methods to try to model them somehow? Or should we abstract away from the complex phenomena and try to find ideal cases that we'll be able to investigate and maybe find some principles? In fact, that's the first step, basically, of the notion of language. I mean, there's an intuitive, common sense notion of language in which, uh, for example, Chinese is a language and romance isn't a language. But the factors that enter into that are historical uh, colors on maps, right. continuity of empires, I mean, non-linguistic distinctions. Right. And if you try to study that, you're studying all of human life. So you won't find anything. I was struck by your comment that, you know, you, 
if you eat one thing, you grow arms. If you eat another, you grow wings. Um, there's a book that has recently appeared by Richard Wrangham about um, the role of food in evolution. And his argument is that there's a correlation between brain size and gut size. And the smaller the gut, the larger the brain. And, and that's precisely because of what kind of food you eat. Because he claims, because of cooking. Right. Uh, what he claims is that around, um, well, it's kind of speculative, but that roughly two million years ago, you get the emergence of a new kind of proto-human fossil, Homo erectus. Right. And it started uh, having a much smaller digestive system from the mouth and the jaw to the gut and everything else. And in fact, it's true. If you look at a monkey, you know, feet, jaw, Speculation is well, this happened because humans started eating cooked food, which is uh, much easier to digest. You get much more energy from it, and so on. So they didn't. You could evolve to a creature which had a much smaller digestive system, and the kind of spare energy that was around could go into developing a bigger brain. Yeah. And, uh, what do you think about explanations like that? I mean, like most evolutionary explanations, it's a kind of a, uh, you try to make a plausible construction of what might have happened. Actually, to give a real explanation in terms of natural selection is no trivial matter. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, there aren't many cases. It, it makes sense. No, nobody doubts that natural selection takes place, but to try to nail it down is not, not easy. Well, and in fact, it's now known that it's only one of many factors in evolution. Like about, uh, maybe I forgot the numbers, but I, I think close to half our genes, you know, something very high, come from uh, something that's called transposition. They, they, they come from other species. In fact, even that's true even of a cell, the mitochondria, some kind of like a bacterium that fits into the cell. So there's all kind of complicated processes going on in evolution of which natural selection is surely one. And these explanations are There's some complications with this one, too, because apparently there's no archaeological evidence for the use of fire that early. The archaeological evidence is several hundreds, hundreds of thousands of years later, I think. But it does seem to make sense. <coughs> the, the explanation rang a bell with me. I think Charles Lamb wrote an essay about how uh, a pig got caught in a that fell on fire, and that was his explanation for uh, how we human acquired it. That's but pretty much the same thing that he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, now, am I wrong? My feeling was that uh, uh, several decades ago, you thought that evolutionary explanations were really part of the mystery. We never really existed. It was something we could never understand. And now it seems to me that you're more... Uh, willing to consider the possibility of making progress there. And I'm just wondering, A, is that true? And if it is true, uh, what's caused the change? Well, first of all, there, there are, you don't have to cite me, there are very distinguished evolutionary biologists who take this position. Like yeah. Richard Lewontin's best-known case. Richard Lewontin. Oh, sure. And his, in the MIT invitation to cognitive science, 
now four volumes, both latest edition. Uh, yeah, he's uh, really good. He had the article on evolution of cognition. In the first edition, which was 15 or so years ago, he wrote a very pessimistic article explaining why he thought we were going to learn anything about the evolution of cognition. Not because it was a mystery in Hume's sense, Newton's sense, but because the methods of inquiry were such that we just wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, so if, if we had tape recordings of what happened two million years ago, maybe we could do it. It's not a Newtonian mystery, just a lack of ability. In the second edition, he repeats the article and then he adds an epilogue in which he says, well, the editors asked me uh, if I could say something a little more upbeat. You know, I'd like to, but uh, facts are facts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to learn anything about it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, that was, uh, that's the way it looked to me too, but for, kind of for technical reasons. If you, the contemporary linguistics, which sort of took off in the 50s, uh, the first thing it tried to do was to, it tried to satisfy several conditions. First of all, it took a narrow view of language, not Chinese, and so forth, but whatever happens to be in your brain and my brain, and in fact, even idealizingly from that, because all of us have many different dialects in our head. So idealized down to a kind of an ideal, pure system, uh, hoping to account for the complications in other ways, as in all the sciences, and then see if you can give a First, an account of that, which will meet several conditions. First has to be what we call descriptively adequate. Just have to get the facts straight. Uh, secondly, it has to meet a condition of explanatory adequacy, namely showing how an infant, given the data it has, can attain this system. So then you'd have a time. If you could do that, which would attribute something to the nature of the infant, break it down, you'd have a kind of a, you'd have a, a certain level of explanation of what the person actually does. They do it because they have this internal system, they have that internal system because the genetic endowment interacting with the environment led to the growth of this system. So that's a pattern of an explanation. Uh, those are the basic questions, a lot of other ones. Uh, but they ran into an immediate contradiction, uh, which was a hard problem and still by no means solved. The problem is that if you try to get a descriptively adequate account of a language, it is extremely intricate. It has a lot of complexities, a lot of special rules, you know, special properties, stipulations. Uh, different languages look different from, from one another, but they compel work, fundamental work for a long time. It seemed to show that languages differed in such a fundamental property of what was called configurationality. Right. That they have And that looks like a, an enormous difference. And there are many other such cases. Well, you know, as long as you have, as the descriptions are complex and varied, you're not going to be able to deal with the problem of explanatory adequacy. Right. Because what you have to, for explanatory adequacy, you have to show they're all basically the same. Mm -hmm. And the differences are kind of you know, minor modifications on a kind of fixed mold. So there was a kind of a tension made it impossible either to meet these, even to meet these conditions, let alone to go on to the question of evolution. 
but evolution has to do with the question of how this fixed innate element evolved. And if you can't figure out what that is, you can't raise the question of evolution in any serious way. Mm -hmm. you know, over time, it's, it's impossible to a considerable extent to resolve the tension that takes a configurationality. Uh, a very significant, subtle work by quite a number of people showed that uh, it was some, it was apparently an illusion. But if you look more, I'm taking the Ken Main case with Walter, which looked like the extreme case of non-configurationality. The work by him and his student, Julie Legate for one, uh, showed that in fact, if you looked at the languages the right way uh, and looked at subtle enough aspects of it, you found that it really was configuration. And it even had uh, movement rules and kind of was behind Elster. And the same was found about Japanese and other languages that were thought to be non-configuration. And the same happened with other properties. Uh, so there's gradual progress towards showing that the apparent variety and diversity and complexity is superficial. And that, uh, uh, in fact, in fact uh, there is a fundamental uniformity. Actually, the same thing's been happening in biology. So if you go back a not very long, a couple of decades, uh, you could read by famous bio, you know, leading highly reputable biologists that uh, the variety of life forms is so extreme that each case has to be studied on its own uh, without preconceptions. Yeah. Uh, and that was the same view in language. Yes. Hoffman yeah. shows this famous comment back in the 1950s and his collection of studies on structural linguistics was that uh, he said we have to accept what he called the Roazian perspective, that each language is an object to be studied on its own without preconception because they vary so much and each is complex in so many ways. Well, in, uh, in neither case, that couldn't be true in biology, it couldn't be true in, in language, but it looked like that's what the facts were showing. Yeah. And in both fields, sort of in parallel and even with some interaction, uh, it's, uh, it, things have moved towards a view where you can see that a large part of the diversity is, uh, is really superficial. In, in the case of biological organisms, it's advanced to the point where one reputable uh, uh, biologist, uh, Michael Sherman, has argued that there's in fact a universal genome that at the time of the Cambrian explosion, a genome was formed and every life form is a minor variant on it. Five hundred million years, but then that's kind of an extreme position, but it's not regarded as absurd. Uh, and there's enough known about conservation of genes and deep homologies and master genes and so on to make it look sort of reasonable. Now, there has been a development somewhat in parallel in the study of language to the point where we can now speculate that there really is something like one language and that there are minor modifications. And there's one life form. And maybe one life form. No, things are moving in that direction. Actually, these are old debates. Mm -hmm. So in biology, it goes back to the famous uh, controversy between uh,
assume that the diversity won, and Darwin seemed to be leading in that direction. But now it looks like the pendulum swinging back the other way. There's this book by a man named Carroll. John Carroll. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, on what's called the Edo Edo Revolution. And that's a kind of a review of a lot of the work that's showing how things are tending towards uniformity. Not quite. No, I think we, we, yeah. we have to wrap it up. Can Anyhow, I just a word about evolution. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, uh, see, if it's the case that, that we can, to the extent that we can show that there are basic principles that account for a substantial part of the nature of language, and that those principles are given to the organism, we can then ask a deeper question of what's given to the organism, how much is genetic and how much is laws of nature. Because remember, what's given kind of a priori from the organism's point of view is two categories. It's in the genes and what nature tells it to happen. So in the biological case, uh, say this, when, a cell, when cells divide, they divide into spheres, not cubes. And that's not because there's a gene that says divide into spheres. That's because that's the way physics works. If you want to minimize energy, you divide into spheres. And, and it turns out there's quite a lot like that. I've always been. And, and the same appears, apparently is true in language. So there are principles of efficient computation, which are probably laws of nature, which uphold for nature generally. And a lot of recent work has, a minority view, but I think a lot of recent work has indicated that uh, non-trivial parts of language are attributable just to the functioning of principles of efficient computation. So that pairs away what has to be explained by an evolutionary account, so it reduces it. To the extent that you can show that laws of nature enter, you have less to account for in fields of evolution, and by now I think we can make some reasonable guesses. I, uh, I've um, always been struck by the fact that the, the simplest organism is rare. Um, I mean, you know, at the cell level, always takes the shape of a, of a kind of a sphere. But if you take a sphere and you put two holes in it, you get a tube, and that's what we are. That's what we are. We're tubes. And by so now, we're either a sphere or a tube. Well, by now it's gone well beyond that. There, there's quite exciting work by. Chris Cherniak, a mathematical biologist in Maryland, who's attempting to show and make arguments that the um, sort of the wiring diagram, you know, the structure, the way neurons are laid out, neural nets are laid out, for very simple organisms like nematodes, uh, is optimal. That is, it's the best way you can do it. Like if an engineer were trying to do it, he would try to reach that ideal, but probably couldn't make it. And he goes on to argue that that's also the reason in this tube uh, why the brain is always at one end and not in the middle, uh -huh. which is a universal property of animals. He tries to argue that that's optimal, uh, optimal uh, uh, minimization of wiring, basically. So to, to bring this to an end, um, unfortunately, we have to. Sounds like you're pretty optimistic about the field and where it's going. Partially. On the other hand, there are countercurrents which I think are very harmful. So if if you look at you know, the amount of money spent in the field, or the number of people working on things, 
And you find that most of them are, are trying to figure out what's going on outside the window by taking videotapes and doing statistical analysis of it. Uh, the fundamentally Galilean concept that you ought to try to discover ideal cases and see if you can develop principles that will then ramify to account for the world. That's, that's a very much a minority position. I think it's probably human nature that we want to look out the window and you have to fight it. Well, maybe. You can also get more money from the NSA. Human nature, too. That's human nature, too. <laughs> Thank you very much, Norm. It's been great. <laughs>